Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. My guest this week is definitely the youngest guest I've ever had, and he's probably one of the smartest as well, particularly given his age. This guy's only 19. His name is Matt Maruka, that's M-A-R-U-C-A, or his mentor is Dr. Jack Cruz, which is a name that may ring a bell to some of you, very big figure in the health fitness and wellbeing space, particularly around science. He's a smart guy, and we talk in this particular episode, which is part one, all about mitochondria. What is mitochondria? What kind of role does it play? Now, I'll warn you, this is quite a technical episode compared to the, some most of the episodes that I put out, but bear with, because it is really quite an important topic and Matt knows so much about it that I kind of just let him run. In part two of this episode, you'll hear exactly how you can nurture your mitochondria. So it's a bit more practical. Uh, To forewarn as well, we had some technical issues around the connection. So I hope that we've stitched that up seamlessly for you, but bear with us. The audio wasn't as good as I'd like either, predominantly because Matt's based out in Bali and their wireless just isn't as reliable. But I think we've probably done a pretty good job of editing it and stitching it together for you. So enjoy part one of my episode with Matt Maruka. Matt Maruka, welcome to the show. How's it going? Very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Good. Just spent some time at the spa in Bali, where I'm currently spending my time. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, I've actually just started the day with a sauna. We've got a little infrared sauna in the yeah. back garden. So, so yeah, well, a nice way to kick off. We should both be in the zone for this conversation then. Yes. No pressure. Okay. Matt, let's start here. And what is it that you do? What's your mission? What's your purpose? So my purpose is to basically create a life of happiness and joy for myself. And Uh my theory, after much experience, focused on the opposite of attempting to create or bring joy and happiness to the lives of others was that if I am not able to successfully find a recipe that will own life, then the only thing that I'll be bringing to others is my own misery and lack of happiness. And I will attempt to fill the void within myself by convincing myself that what I'm bringing to others is a value when really, if I haven't been able to find that value in myself, in my own life, there really is nothing for me to bring to others. And so after that experience of, you know, that I spent the first 17 years of my life learning, which is 85, 90% of my life thus far, I decided that it was most important to focus on how to optimize myself because then I actually have something from which I can go out and share with others of value. And Mm. so that's been my mission. And so the way that I do that, have been doing that for the last five years was and is optimizing my health because I had lots of issues with 14 years old and going into high school. And as a result, I began searching when Western medicine was not working for me. And then I found some some really interesting researchers and so on who basically helped me to, how can I say, bring my life to a completely different level. Mm-hmm. In what sense? And, and so that's 
that's my mission and that is my purpose. And the way that I'm doing it is, like I said, improving my health and testing all the things. Kind of like you might know Ben Greenfield. He's kind mm -hmm. of the most publicly known. And Dave Asprey, you yeah. know, publicly known guys who are doing health experiments on and you know i'm 19 right now they're in their well dave's in his 50s or late 40s and ben's in his 30s mid 30s so i figure i'll probably step in where they leave off mm -hmm. when the years go by and i think that's kind of where i'm at right now i'm just trying to go to the next level i already tried most of what they recommend you know dave on the supplement the bulletproof coffee side of things and been on the supplement and exercise fitness and other kinds of hacks. And many of them have benefited me tremendously, but there was a big gap between what the results I was getting while practicing their protocols and what I would consider more mainstream biohacking, you know, nootropics, smart drugs, like I said, supplement focused. The idea that using an external pill can really have any long-term meaningful impact on our biology and the actual results that I needed that there was this, this gap. And so I struggled for a while in, in my journey trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I get to the next level? I've already kind of improved my symptoms that I was dealing with when I was a kid pretty tremendously, but I still haven't gotten to where I believe I could go. And still to this day, I still haven't, you know, I still have lots of room to improve on, but but there was a big, a big missing piece that I since learning about their work, and that was about the importance of light and mitochondria, which both of those two, I'd say, leaders in this field have begun to adopt. Likewise, after the guy who's my mentor, Dr. Jack Cruz, made mm -hmm. a very big deal about it and brought it to the attention of the paleo diet world, and yeah, so basically become my mission to learn as much as I can about these mitochondria. And I basically embarked upon what became a full-time job in starting a company, Raw Optics, to provide blue light blocking glasses that are attractive to a wide audience. And that just took on a life of its own beyond what I could have possibly imagined. So my focus went from learning and biohacking and testing to, okay, I've gotten pretty good where I need to be, and I'm going to keep testing day to day from really diving as deep into the research and the science into new research and new science, because I had already found this new level of light, mitochondria, and so on, which is, I believe, the most advanced research out there as far as biology goes, and I've got a really strong hold on that. And so I decided to sort of build something out of that and test, in a way, the fact that I've chosen to work further on the company is my way of testing whether the ideas are truly as valid as I was led to think by my own experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that the glasses company that I've started to basically the glasses I sell are blue light blocking glasses. They block the blue light frequencies, which are emitted by modern artificial lights and screen devices that are the same emitted by the morning sun, which mm -hmm. has basically tricked believing that it's daytime or sunrise or noon when it's the middle of the night or late in the evening when we're designed to be secreting melatonin and getting prepared for sleep. Yep. Their uh, glasses block them and they help us maintain a proper circadian rhythm, just like the benefit of not in late evening. It disrupts our circadian rhythm and our sleep as well. These glasses do the same thing, but they block the 
omnipresent artificial light exposure that we now face at night. And it's kind of like if you decide not to eat late, but you're exposed to a bunch of artificial light constantly throughout the evening, it's mm-hmm. stimulating the body and turning the brain on, disrupting our sleep cycle as well. Yeah. And even more profound way because is that stimulus. So yeah. that, that's sort of mission, my purpose, and the means by which I'm manifesting it. And it is going very well. You know, I'm helping thousands of people to sleep better, which I, I rarely take time to, you know, pat myself on the back and say, wow, you know, Matt, you've gone a long way, especially since graduating high school a year and a half. Now you have thousands of people wearing your glasses who are sleeping better, sharing the information. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm all about, right? Cool. So congratulations on that. So you're 19 years old. You've already accomplished a lot. I just want to come back though. I mean, given your age, I was, I'm 44 now. I was 37, 33 actually, when I had my first sort of health epiphany, 37 when I actually put some action behind the intent. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of people in my company, Body Shot, who are later in years before they come to these conclusions that something's got to change. What was that pivotal point for you where you thought, actually, I've got to make changes and I've got to be responsible for my own health? Yeah, that was a very, very interesting time. That was when I was getting acne as a 14-year-old in high school. So most kids who get acne, they're already like, well, or I should say they're whatever, you know, this is just how it is, just hormones and so on and so on. Mm. But for me, it was sort of like, I had already dealt with really severe headaches constantly throughout middle school when I was really young. I had already dealt with gut issues like gas and bloating all that time as well. As early as I can remember, whenever I would eat a meal, I would be gassy and bloating. Uh, It was just miserable. And then I was also having really bad pollen allergies and seasonal allergies. These were the biggest symptoms that actually went away for the the vast majority uh, pretty quickly when I just started experimenting with diet. But those weren't the things that, that triggered me to start experimenting with diet. Like I said, it was the acne. Basically, something, some switch flipped where I kind of thought, okay, this is the last straw. Like I've been dealing with all this stuff. I've gone to Western medical doctors. They've given me options of taking Advil for headaches, uh, constantly aspirin for my allergy issues and for my gut issues, taking Tums or something like what an absurd Mm -hmm. suggestion just to take Tum, not even like questioning what wrong in the gut. Right. And so then it was just something as simple as vanity, you know, like having acne on my skin where I was just like, all right, I didn't think I had a chance at fixing the other things, but it just came to a point where I was thinking this has got to be fixable. Like this is just not just unacceptable, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was just frustrated, tired. And basically once I started looking into that, it was like my gut was damaged and all the greasy food I was eating was somehow clogging my pores as a result of a damaged gut. And I didn't really have any reason to think that other than it just seemed to make sense in my mind. But even though I don't think that that's actually how it works, you know, like oil just going straight through the gut into this bloodstream and clogging my pores. Like I, there's mm-hmm. definitely filters between there. There's yep. definitely a relationship between the diet and for sure. And that's what I learned. Right. But then when I made this little change, all of a sudden everything changed. Like I said, my allergies, gut issues and headaches automatically started improving. And then I was reading these blogs like Mark Sisson, Chris Kresser, Rob Wolf, Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, all the paleo big guys in 2014, 2015, when it was a really early young thing and very few people had heard about it. And the most amazing thing was that they were 
basically shattering the paradigm that your genes are your life. And that was never something that I had heard about. So as soon as I read those blogs and that information about how our environment and in their belief system, which is no longer my belief system, that was the most important factor for basically optimizing our epigenetics. I was off to the races from there. That's probably the better answer to your question. It was, I have control of my health and every individual based on our lifestyle choices has control of how our genes are expressed and the reality that we manifest as a, as a physical organism. That was just wow to me. And since then, I've just been at constantly striving to see how I can improve. Yeah. And is that for improve for now or even at the age of 19, if you still got an eye on you at 99, is it about longevity for you or is it about performance and purpose and serving others today or both? Well, I'd say definitely longevity, but it's, again, it's really hard to put longevity in perspective at my age. Like I just have a lot of, yeah, that's, that's why I ask. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of trouble considering even how I'll feel, what I'll look like and everything in 10 years. Mm. Really, you know, cause 10 years ago I was nine years old. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't really have that perspective having been a really like conscious and aware being 10 years back, you know? Mm. So I'll probably a couple more years before I can really think back. Maybe when I'm 25, I'll be able to remember back to when I'm 15, when I begin to have my strongest memories. Mm. And then I'll be able to say, okay, now I start to see a real connection. But for now, I can look back a couple years, three years and four years and have pretty strong memories developing at this point, which happens, interestingly enough, to coincide with when I began to practice what I call the light diet, when I began to consume adequate or ample amounts of seafood to improve the tissue of my brain and its function and the, you know, that the whole nervous system, when I began to expose myself to sunlight on a regular basis, primarily in hmm. the morning to set my circadian rhythm to avoid artificial light at night, to minimize or avoid, you know, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth use, phone up to the head, mm-hmm. upgrading my brain, you know, I'll use it on speakerphone now. So I stopped all the things that were damaging my body and brain and started doing the things that are more beneficial. And interestingly enough, that's when my memories started to get really, really vibrant. And there's no coincidence there, I don't think. I think it's because of that that my brain was functioning well. So really my memory begins that year when mm-hmm. I started doing that stuff. And it is like very sharp since then. But before then, I could hardly tell you what anything was like, except that I was miserable. Really so interesting. yeah, I think that the biggest thing for me is to feel on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. it's all about for me, how am I going to make myself feel on a daily basis? Because then I know that when I'm happier, I feel better, I have energy. And I, mm-hmm. I presume, based on what I've learned about biology, that the more energy I feel flowing through my body on a daily basis and the better I feel, this is probably a sign that I am improving in health mm. and not improving. And if I spend, the thing is though, I still spend many days where I'm on my computer for several hours working on this business and so on. And I'll, I'll you know, feel a little bit woozy or any, you know, just not optimal because I'm sitting on my computer for five hours. And I know this isn't good for me to be looking at the light on the Wi-Fi because I don't have a, hardwired connection where I am in, in the uh, Indonesia at this point. Yep. But I know that if I go get in the, like you morning, the sauna and the ice bath back and forth about three or four times, everything is better. And so I make that like my creed to do that always and try to keep myself operating at the highest level of function. 
and surf and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. I'd love to be healthy into longevity and optimize that. And I think th- the way that I feel today is the best measure for that. But to, to maybe go a little further, just on that note, I'm not interested in physical performance. You know, like I wouldn't consider if you, if you saw me uh, with my shirt off, I'm not ripped, you know, per se. I'm not like a big gym guy with huge muscles. You know, if I surfed for the next three years, as much as I just started, I probably would be more like that. And by the time I'm 22, 23, 24, just naturally, Mm -hmm. but I extremely skinny. And the reason I'm saying this is because again, I could go to the gym and start lifting weights and I'd probably get shredded really quickly. But based on what I've learned from Dr. Cruz, when we start to put basically energy and a lot of mitochondrial density into our muscles, which is again, if you have really big muscles, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of mitochondria to support that, that mass and that function. And, and just carrying it around and keeping it alive rather than you know shrinking away basically it requires a lot of mitochondria a lot of energy and so this is based on the evidence this is taking away from or diverting energy that would otherwise sort of be concentrated in the places of our body where it's most important which are the brain and the heart I'm pointing to the brain and the heart mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing with this motion here <laughs> and so that's a really interesting perspective. you know it it isn't like a hundred percent proven theory, this idea that I was learning from Dr. Cruz, but it made a lot of sense to me. There's this theory called the expensive tissue hypothesis that that basically is very much related and it's in line with human evolution where as our brain grew, our gut shrunk. And the reason why is because the gut, it takes a lot of energy to maintain the gut and to carry out all of its functions. Mm-hmm. So basically humans were able to go on to it, you probably know this, a much more nutrient-dense diet, like yep. mostly meat and fish-based, or seed-based, I should say, rather than vegetable and plant-based. So we didn't need to have like four stomachs or whatever a cat like cattle has, or, you know, so many such big and gut like a gorilla or an ape has. We could really shrink it down. And then again, we're mostly on a carnivore diet is what I believe is the human's natural diet. And then we're able to put a lot more energy into having a really, really big brain in addition with the benefit of having high DHA in our diet, DHA being the omega-3 from seafood that we use to make the myelin that Mm -hmm. allows our nerves to communicate effectively. And so, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily wise for anyone to really put a lot of focus on their muscular tissue unless there's a sort of a purpose behind it, like a sport you're playing or a something, but just going to the gym and pumping iron. Yeah. If you're not really healthy, healthy, go for it, you know, do what you want in any way, do what you want. But if you're not healthy, if you live in an indoor blue light, toxic lifestyle, you're diverting a lot of energy away from the brain and the heart into these tissues. But if you live an outdoor lifestyle, if you work out outdoors, it's a different story. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I haven't heard that actually, but let's come back to mitochondria because that, that's a very big talking point, isn't it? I mean, firstly, what is mitochondria? And why is it important that we're all tuned into it and how we can nurture our mitochondria? Yeah, so mitochondria are the engines in our cells that convert potential energy in the universe into kinetic energy, essentially, which is energy in motion that we can use to carry out tasks and Maybe a better way to say it is that mitochondria are the transistors of human life, of all life, of all complex life on earth. 
they take what is possible outside of us and turn it into sort of a dance of, of what we really are. So again, that might sound like vague language, but I'm trying to be poetic almost, but the best way to put it is that when we are living, what's really happening is we are catalyzing reactions in nature that afford us energy and that makes us favorable to the universe so we can go on. In other mm -hmm. words, nothing that is nothing that breaks the second law of thermodynamics can exist. So the second law of thermodynamics, if I'm not mistaken, means that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. And so and I might have the wrong name of the law, but I'm pretty sure that's the second law of thermodynamics. Some physics listener of yours will clarify. But the point is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. This is well known. And so life, which requires energy, again, anything for anything to move, this was Isaac Newton's law, it requires a force. So in order for anything to move, it requires a force. So I, just by virtue of being alive, even if I'm completely still and not moving, I am still moving. All of the particles in my cells are moving, cells are turning over. At the cellular level, there's tremendous amounts of motion. My heart is beating. My blood is flowing. My lungs are contracting and expanding. So motion is going on in life no matter how still we are. It's going on in tens of trillions of our cells constantly. So again, this requires energy. So the question is, well, where is this energy coming from and why, why do we even exist is a really good question that I've learned to answer in ways that I never imagined I would ever be able to answer. Question like in such ways that I, I dreamed of as a kid and now I already kind of figured it out. I'm like, eh, I mean, I, I don't fully understand it as well as I can, but it, it's pretty solid. So basically, and this is really to the core of what is a mitochondria. So basically what life, all life on earth does is if you imagine a fire, most people don't really probably know how a fire works. And I'm saying that because I didn't really know how fire works. So I'm just kind of assuming that most other people didn't too. <laughs> but what happens in fire is there's a little bit of a spark. It always requires a spark or a flash of lightning or a fire. Mm -hmm. So the reason why is that spark or that initial input of energy. And again, it always happens on a hydrogen-based fuel source. Fire only uses a hydrogen-based fuel source, which means anything that comes from life, like dried wood, dried leaves, or for example, fossil fuels, petroleum, these are all hydrogen-based fuel sources because they all come from life living organisms, which are hydrogen-based. So that little spark, it causes one of the hydrogen molecules on this carbon backbone, which is, again, what life is pretty much based on, is hydrogen based on carbon. And it breaks the hydrogen apart from that carbon backbone. And once that hydrogen is free, it wants to react with something called oxygen, this molecule that's present in the air. It loves to react with oxygen and make water because then the molecules are very stable. And that reaction releases a lot of energy. So as soon as you have one input of energy, like a spark or a flash of lightning, that reaction, the combustion reaction, perpetuates itself because the energy released when the hydrogen bonds with the oxygen in the air is the energy, is the next spark. And so mm -hmm. you basically have a massively self-perpetuating reaction once you have the first spark to break the hydrogens free from the carbon backbone. Okay. So that basically releases a ton of energy into the environment, right? Now I'm going to try to make this as, as clear as possible because maybe I'm giving you more depth than, 
than, than you're looking for. But, but essentially what life does is the exact same thing. So life takes two molecules that are existing in the universe that would like to react, but can't given the certain circumstances. It w- requires what's called an energy input or energy of activation to overcome a barrier. And basically once that energy is input, just like a spark into a fire, that reaction can essentially perpetuate itself. So our mitochondria does the exact same thing as a fire. There's other like bacteria and other life forms, but primarily, yeah, just bacteria and archaea. They can use all sorts of different molecules to do this. But mitochondria, ours, have become extremely efficient at using the exact same molecules as fire to carry out this reaction, what we call life. So our mitochondria, we consume through our mouth or you know, other, the way that other animals consume or life forms consume hydrogen, mm-hmm. food. We consume hydrogen. Any, anything that we call food, you can consider it hydrogen, okay. essentially. Because, for example, sugars, proteins, and fats, or carbs, proteins, fats. Well, proteins, we can put them aside because they're more building blocks. We don't really break them down for energy. They are still based on, they're based on amino acids, which make up proteins. The amino acids are still carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen-based oftentimes. But, but so the, the, the carbs and the fats are the ones we actually burn for energy to keep us alive, right? To carry out all of these complicated functions like moving, breathing, thinking, and so on. So we take in, like I said, hydrogen through our mouth and we digest it and break it apart. And all of the food that we eat, for energy at least, the proteins, again, they're used for building and, and maintenance of our structure. But the majority of all the calories that we're actually eating, you know, protein people don't really consider calories, again, because it's used for building primarily. It does have some, but the only time we really break protein down for energy, which is sort of a waste of the expensive tissue, because it is an expensive tissue to make, is if we're starving of sugars or fats, you know, like we're burn off our body fat, or we have no sugar or fat in our diet, we'll start breaking down the protein into sugars. But we break the hydrogens off the backbone in a process called glycolysis and then the Krebs cycle. And then we feed these hydrogens with their electrons into the mitochondria. And basically, what do we react them with? Well, why do we breathe constantly for Mm. oxygen, right? So literally what we're doing in our mitochondria is we're taking the hydrogen that we consume through our mouth, just like all other animals do. Plants actually make it themselves using the hydrogen and water, breaking it apart from oxygen and then binding it with carbon dioxide in the air. They make their own sugar. They make their own food. So they make it, and they break it apart to stay alive. We just eat them and make it easy. And we also eat the animals that they eat, that eat them. And so we're afforded much more, let's say, complexity because we are able to basically consume a plant that spent its entire life condensing sunlight energy into fuel, and we can eat it in one meal and basically have the advantage of that plant's entire season or life or an animal's entire life would be a better enough. So um, again, we have a controlled fire inside of ourselves. So it's really essentially simplest answer, putting it all together for people to get why I say this mitochondria is a controlled fire and there's approximately a thousand of them in every single one of our hundred trillion human cells, which means about 10 quintillion. If I've got my numbers right, it's a lot of these little engines and they keep us kicking. And again, the reason we have so many is because in order to maintain, for example, this is a story that I haven't actually told in a lot of podcasts, but because you asked the question, it's, it's I think, very valid thing to bring up. 
mitochondria allowed life to become complex because all life used to be bacteria, which as most people know is so small that it's growing and living on all over my computer's keys, on probably on this little screen. They're so small we can't even see them on the little camera. They're everywhere, but we can't see them. And they also are basically just like a fire, but a controlled fire, taking molecules that, that want to react but can't, and then inputting a little bit of energy, and then they react, and that releases more than was input, which allows the, the cycle to perpetuate itself. And if anyone is curious enough to ask where did the initial energy come from, it came from these hydrothermal vents at the bottoms of the oceans. Once there's a book by a guy from your neck of the woods in London, University College of London named Nick Lane, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote a book called The Vital Question. The Vital Question. Vital Question. Yeah, vital having a double entendre there. Yeah, vitality and so on. So essentially what this guy, Nick Lane, again, an Englishman working at the University College of London, he showed that all life forms, as we discussed, are using energy that's available in the environment and basically creating something out of it or taking advantage of something that was present, like potentially present, but actually making it useful. So like taking, for example, two molecules that want to react, but aren't going to react and then inputting that energy, letting them react. And then that releases more energy that began. That is a, by definition, an exothermic process, meaning it releases more energy than it took to put in. And it, it has a net gain. It's like when you go out, and it's funny, on, on a macro scale, you can imagine someone goes out, like where I am in Indonesia right now, there's everywhere there are rice paddies. It's, there's more rice paddies than there are anything else practically. Mm. And the analogy that I could give for what life does, because we're doing it on a large scale, is this individual who's, who's working on the rice paddy has found that the amount of energy that they put in to create, to sow a paddy of rice and grow it, and then harvest it, dry it, and cook it and eat it, the energy that they're getting out is unbelievably greater than the amount that they put in, such that that one person working in a rice paddy could potentially feed a family or mm. 50 families with that rice paddy because one rice paddy at a harvest turns into a lot of rice. So this is what bacteria do at the smallest scale. Now, here's where it gets interesting, though, is that the question he asks is, how did life go from being these single-celled organisms that could never excel beyond their tiny, tiny shape to something as massive and complex as a human, literally quintillions of times larger in size, even numbers beyond quintillions? And what he basically discusses is that it's all about surfaces. So when life was bacteria, it had a certain surface-to-volume ratio. So essentially, cells could not expand beyond a certain surface-to-volume ratio. And this might sound kind of vague. What is a surface-to-volume ratio? Well, surfaces is the membranes of an organism, of a bacteria, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't very clear necessarily why this is, but you couldn't have a big cell with a huge volume but a very small surface. The reason why, it turns out, is because the way that we as organisms generate this energy, the way that we use two molecules that want to react to basically gain more energy from what's available than was initially input to get that energy out is we use something called a proton gradient. And a proton gradient is just what it sounds like, a gradient, which is a difference in two things, 
and it's a gradient of protons. So on these membranes, which are the surfaces in a living organism, there's more protons on one side than there are on another, but not naturally. What life does essentially, and this is, he looks at, at all living organisms and, and tries to understand what do we have in common. And the thing that we have in common is what are called respiratory proteins. And these are proteins that sit along a membrane and basically take an electron donor, which is one of the molecules we've been referring to throughout this podcast, an electron acceptor. And basically, so one of these molecules donates electrons to a chain that funnels these electrons across the chain, basically using the energy that's contained in those electrons as they're pulled towards the other molecule, which is pulling the electrons, therefore the acceptor. And so again, you have something that has something to give, like basically giving an electron and something that wants to steal that electron. And that's fundamentally what I've been referring to as two molecules that have potential energy that's available. This mm -hmm. organism inputs that energy so that it can basically get those electrons off of that donor molecule and then allow them to go down this chain towards the acceptor molecule. And then in the end of the process, these two molecules, again, hydrogen in our mitochondria, this process starts with the hydrogen donating electrons and the oxygen, which pulls electrons very strongly, pulling the electrons towards it. This is the reason why if we stop breathing, we die immediately because we no longer have oxygen to be pulling electrons that are donated by hydrogen. And the purpose, getting back to what we we're talking about, about these proton gradient things, is that as those electrons flow across this membrane across these respiratory proteins, which are common to all living organisms, the potential energy in those electrons is used to pump protons from one side of this membrane to the other side. Okay. And mm -hmm. so the key thing to note about that process is that if we just let everything sit the way it is, like if someone shoots me basically, so I can no longer get, and I bleed out. That's if you get shot, typically the way you die is blood loss. The reason you die of blood loss is because you no longer have the blood supplying oxygen to the mitochondria. That's why you die rapidly. It isn't just because you lost blood. People say, yo, you die of blood loss. That's not really a cause of death. The cause of death is suffocation, a lack of oxygen to the mitochondria mm -hmm. because there's no blood to carry it to the mitochondria. So what happens when you don't have that oxygen getting to the mitochondria, and it's interesting to me how I can, I'm even surprised that I can understand this in a way that makes sense or explain it in a way that makes sense as well, because it was such a foreign concept to me before. But when you no longer have that energy, or I should say the oxygen coming to the mitochondria, you no longer have that pull, which is pulling electrons from a donor to an acceptor, and then pumping protons across this gradient to maintain the gradient. And here's the key, the key thing that everyone needs to know. We don't just create this gradient for no reason. What we do, again, using all that energy from the donor and the acceptor, pulling them along a chain, which you could think of kind of like, kind of like a train almost, or you could think of it like just something where something goes through and it's sucked out for every single little bit of energy that can be sucked off of it before it's discarded. It's a very interesting thing, and I couldn't tell you the best analogy at this very moment. But essentially, every single bit of energy is stripped off that electron and used to create this proton gradient. And then these protons, which are now concentrated on one side of this membrane, trapped, let's say, their only choice is to flow back down the gradient through something called the ATPase, which is another one of the four things that Lane found in common between all living organisms, even bacteria and archaea. So one is the respiratory proteins, the other 
is the ATPs. And I, there may have only been three, but these are the only two that are relevant for our purposes at this very moment. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotsperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.